Book the Sixth, Part Three of Birds of Prey by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Arcadia, November First. This is Huxter's Cross, and I live here. I have lived here a week, and should like to live here for ever. Oh, let me be rational for a few hours while I write the record of this last blissful week. Let me be reasonable and businesslike and Sheldon-like for this one wet afternoon, and then I may be happy and foolish again. Be still, beating heart, as the heroines of Minerva press romances were accustomed to say to themselves on the smallest provocation. Be still, foolish, fluttering schoolboy heart, which has taken a new lease of youth and folly from a fair landlord called Charlotte Halliday. Drip, 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 o' oh rain. The day is dark and cold and dreary, and the vine still clings to the mouldering wall, and with every great gust the dead leaves fall. But thy sweet, sad verse wakes no responsive echo in my heart, O tender transatlantic poet, for my heart is light and glad, recklessly glad, heedless of to-morrow, forgetful of yesterday, full to the very brim with the dear delight of to-day. And now to business. I descend from the supernal realms of fancy to the dry record of commonplace fact. This day week I arrived at Hydling, after a tedious journey, which, with stoppages at Derby and Normanton, and small delays at obscurer stations, had occupied the greater part of the day. It was dusk when I took my place at the hybrid vehicle, half-coach, half-omnibus, which was to convey me from Hydling to Huxter's Cross. A transient glimpse of Hydling showed me one long straggling street and a square church tower. Our road branched off from the straggling street, and in the autumn dusk I could just discover the dim outlines of distant hills encircling a broad waste of moor. I have been so steeped in London that this wild barren scene had a charm for me which it could scarcely possess for others. Even in the gloom of that dark waste of common land was pleasant to me. I shared the public vehicle with one old woman, who snored peacefully in the remotest corner, while I looked out at the little open window and watched the darkening landscape. Our drive occupied some hours. We passed two or three little clusters of cottages and homesteads, where the geese screamed and the cocks crowed at our approach and where a few twinkling tapers in upper windows proclaimed the hour of bedtime. At one of these clusters of habitation, a little island of humanity in the waste of wold and moor, we changed horses, with more yowing and come-upping than would have attended the operation in a civilized country. At this village I heard the native tongue for the first time in all its purity, and for any meaning which it conveyed to my ear, I might as well have been listening to the patois of agricultural Carthage. After changing horses, we went uphill, with perpetual groanings and grumblings and grindings and whip-smacking and come-upping for an indefinite period. And then we came to a cluster of cottages, suspended high up in the sharp autumn atmosphere, as it seemed to me and the driver of the vehicle came to my little peephole of a window, and told me with some slight modification of the Carthaginian patois that I was there. I alighted and found myself at the door of a village inn, 
with the red light from within shining out upon me where I stood, and a battered old sign groaning and creaking above my head. For me, who in all my life had been accustomed to find my warmest welcome at an inn, this was to be at home. I paid my fare and took up my carpet-bag and entered the hostelry. I found a rosy-faced landlady, clean and trim, though a trifle flowery as to the arms and apron. She had emerged from a kitchen, an old-fashioned chamber with a floor of red brick, a chamber which was all in a rosy glow with the firelight, and looked like a Dutch picture, as I peered at it through the open doorway. There were the most picturesque of cakes and loaves heaped upon a wooden bench by the hearth, and the whole aspect of the place was delicious in its homely comfort. Oh, I said to myself, how much better the northern winds blowing over these untrodden hills, and the odor of home-made loaves, than the blooming bells of St. Dunstan's, and the greasy steam of tavern shops and steaks. My heart warmed to this Yorkshire and these Yorkshire people. Was it for Charlotte's sake, I wonder, that I was so ready to open my heart to everybody and everything in this unknown land? A very brief parley set me quite at ease with my landlady. Even the Carthaginian patois became intelligible to me after a little experience. I found that I could have a cosy, cleanly chamber, and be fed and cared for upon terms that seemed absurdly small, even to a person of my limited means. My cordial hostess brought me a meal, which was positively luxurious, broiled ham and poached eggs, such as one scarcely hopes to see out of a picture of still life, crisp brown cakes fresh from that wonderful oven whose door I had seen yawning open in the Flemish interior below, strong tea and cream, the cream that one reads of in pastoral stories. I enjoyed my banquet, and then opened my window and looked out at the landscape, dimly visible in the faint starlight. I was at the top of a hill, the topmost of an ascending range of hills, and to some minds that alone is rapture. To inhale the fresh night air was to drink deeply of an ethereal beverage. I had never experienced so delicious a sensation since I had stood on the grassy battlements of Chateau d'Arcs with the orchards and gardens of sunny Normandy spread like a carpet below my feet. But this hill was loftier than that on which the feudal castle rears its crumbling towers, and the landscape below me was wilder than verdant Normandy. No words can tell how I rejoiced at this untrodden region, this severance from the strand and temple bar. I felt as if my old life was falling away from me, like the scales of the lepers who were cleansed by the divine healer. I felt myself worthier to love, or even to be loved by, the bright, true-hearted girl whose image fills my heart. Ah, if heaven gave me that dear angel, I think my old life, my old recklessness, my old want of principle, would drop away from me altogether, and the leper would stand forth cleansed and whole. Could I not be happy with her here? among these forgotten hills, these wide, scattered homesteads. Could I not be happily dissevered eternally from billboard room and cursal, race-ground and dancing-rooms? Yes, completely and unreservedly happy. Happy as a village curate, with seventy pounds a year and a cast-off coat, 
supplied by the charity of a land too poor to pay its pastors the wage of a decent butler happy as a struggling farmer though the clay soil of my scanty acres were never so sour and stubborn my landlord never so hard about his rent happy as a peddler with my pack of cheap tawdry wares slung behind me and my charlotte tramping gaily by my side i breakfasted the next morning in a snug little parlour behind the bar where i overheard two carters conversing in the carthaginian patois to which i became hourly more accustomed my brisk cheery landlady came in and out while i took my meal and whenever i could detain her long enough i tried to engage her in conversation i asked her if she had ever heard the name of manel and after profound consideration she replied in the negative i don't mind hearing aught of folks called manel she said with more or less of the patois which i was beginning to understand but i haven't got much memory for names i might have heard of such folks and not mindin to them this was rather dispiriting but i knew that if any record of christian manel's daughter existed at huxter's cross it was in my power to discover it i asked if there was any official in the way of a registrar to be found in the village and found that there was no one more important than the old man who kept the keys of the church the registers were kept in the vestry my landlady believed and the old man was called jonas gorlis and lived a half a mile off at the homestead of his son-in-law but my landlady said she would send for him immediately and pledged herself to produce him in the course of an hour i told her that i would find my way to the churchyard in the meantime whither mr gorlis could follow me as soon as convenient the autumnal morning was fresh and bright as spring and huxter's cross seemed the most delightful place on earth to me though it is only a cluster of cottages relieved by one farmhouse of moderate pretensions my hostelry of the magpie a general shop which is also the post office and a fine old norman church which lies away from the village and bears upon it the traces of better days near the church is an old granite cross around which the wild flowers and grasses grow rank and high it marks the spot where there was once a flourishing market-place but all mortal habitations have vanished and the huckster's cross of the past has now no other memorial than this crumbling stone the churchyard was unutterably still and solitary a robin perched on the topmost bar of the old wooden gate singing his joyous carol as i approached he hopped from the gate to the low moss-grown wall and went on singing as i passed him i was in the humour to apostrophize skylark or donkey or to be sentimental about anything in creation just then so i told my robin what a pretty creature he was and that i would sooner perish than hurt him by so much as a tip of a feather being bound to remember my sheldon even when most sentimental i endeavoured to combine the meditative mood of a hervey with the business-like sharpness of a lawyer's clerk and while musing on the common lot of man in general i did not omit to search the mouldering tombstones for some record of the manels in particular i found none and yet if the daughter of christian minel had been buried in that churchyard the name of her father would surely have been inscribed upon her tombstone i had read all the epitaphs when the wooden gate creaked on its hinges and admitted a wizened little old man 
one of those ancient meanderers who seemed to have been created on purpose to fill the post of sexton with this elderly individual i entered the church of huxter's cross which had the same mouldy atmosphere as the church at spotswold the vestry was an icy little chamber which had once been a family vault but it was not much colder than miss judson's best parlour and i endured the cold bravely while i searched the registries of the past sixty years i searched in vain after groping amongst the names of all the non-entities who had been married at huxter's cross since the beginning of the century i found myself no nearer the secret of charlotte Manel's marriage and then i reflected upon all the uncertainties surrounding that marriage miss Minnell had gone to yorkshire to visit her mother's relations and had married in yorkshire and the place which anthony sparsfield remembered having heard of in connection with that marriage was huxter's cross but it did not by any means follow that the marriage had taken place at that obscure village miss Minnell might have been married at hull or york or leeds or at any of the principal places of the county with that citizen class of people marriage was a grand event a solemn festivity and miss Minnell and her friends could have been likely to prefer that so festive an occasion should be celebrated anywhere rather than at the forgotten old church among the hills i shall have to search every register in yorkshire till i light upon the record i want i thought to myself unless sheldon will consent to advertise for the Minnell marriage certificate there could scarcely be danger in such an advertisement as the connection between the name of Minnell and the Haygarth estate is only known to ourselves. Acting upon this idea, I wrote to George Sheldon by that afternoon's post, urging him to advertise for descendants of Miss Charlotte Minnell. Charlotte, dear name, which is a kind of music for me. It was almost a pleasure to write that letter because of the repetition of that delightful noun the next day i devoted to a drive around the neighborhood in a smart little dog-cart hired on very moderate terms from mine host i had acquainted myself with the geography of the surrounding country and i contrived to visit every village church within a certain radius of huxter's cross but my inspection of mildewed old books and my heroic endurance of cold and damp in mouldy old churches resulted in nothing but disappointment I returned to my magpie after dark, a little disheartened and thoroughly tired, but still very pleased with my rustic quarters and my adopted county. My landlord's horse had shown himself a very model of equine perfection. Candles were lighted and curtains drawn in my cosy little chamber, and the table creaked beneath one of those luxurious Yorkshire teas which might wean an alderman from the coarser delights of turtle or congereal soup and venison at noon the following day a very primitive kind of postman brought me a letter from sheldon that astute individual told me that he declined to advertise or to give any kind of publicity to his requirements if i were not afraid of publicity i should not be obliged to pay you a pound a week he remarked with pleasing candour since advertisements would get me more information in a week than you may scrape together in a twelvemonth. But I happen to know the danger of publicity, and that many a good thing has been snatched out of a man's hands just as he was working it into shape. I don't say that this could be done in my case, 
and you know very well that it could not be done, as I hold papers which are essential to the very first move in the business. I perfectly understand the meaning of these remarks, and I am inclined to doubt the existence of those important papers. Suspicion is a fundamental principle in the Shelton mind, and my friend George trusts me because he is obliged to trust me, and only so far as he is obliged, and is tormented, more or less, by the idea that I may at any moment attempt to steal a march upon him. But to return to his letter, I should recommend you to examine the registries of every town or village within, say, thirty miles of Huxter's Cross. If you find nothing in such registries, we must fall back upon the larger towns, beginning with Hull, as being nearest to our starting point. The work will, I fear, be slow and very expensive for me. I need scarcely again urge upon you the necessity of confining your outlay to the minimum, as you know that my affairs are desperate. It couldn't well be lower water than it is with me, in a pecuniary sense, and I expect every day to find myself ground. And now for my news. I have discovered the burial place of Samuel Manel, after no end of trouble, the details of which I needn't bore you with, since you are now pretty well up in that sort of work. I am thankful to say I have secured the evidence that settles for Samuel, and ascertained by tradition that he died unmarried. Thus, onus probande, would fall upon any one purporting to be descended from said Samuel, and we know how uncommonly difficult said person would find it to prove anything. So, having disposed of Samuel, I came back to London by the next mail. Cali, in the month of November, not being one of those wildly gay watering-places which attempt the idler, I arrived just in time to catch this afternoon's post, and I now look impatiently to your Miss Charlotte Minnell of Huxter's Cross. Yours, etc., G.S. I obeyed my employer to the letter, hired my landlord's dog-cart for another day's exploration, and went further afield in search of Miss Charlotte's marriage lines. I came home late at night, this time thoroughly worn out, studied a railway guide with the view to my departure, and decided on starting for Hull by a train that would leave Hyde Lane Station at four o'clock the following afternoon. I went to bed tired in body and depressed in spirit. Why was I so sorry to leave Huxter's Cross? What subtle instinct of the brain or heart made me aware of that desert region amongst the hills held earth's highest felicity for me? The next morning was bright and clear. I heard the guns of sportsmen popping merrily in the still air as I breakfasted before an open window, while a noble sea-coal fire blazed on the hearth opposite me. There is no stint of fuel at Magpie. Everything in Yorkshire seems to be done with a lavish hand. I have heard Yorkshiremen called mean. As if meanness could exist in the hearts of my Charlotte's countrymen. My own experience of the country is brief, but I can only say that my friends of the magpie are liberality itself, and that a Yorkshire tea is the very acme of unsophisticated bliss in the way of eating and drinking. I have dined at Philippi's. I know every dish in the menu of the Maison Dorie, but if I am to make my life a burden beneath the dark sway of the demon dyspepsia, let my destruction arrive in the shape of the ham and eggs, the crisp golden-brown cakes, 
and undefiled honey of this northern Arcadia. I told my friendly hostess that I was going to leave her, and she was sorry. She was sorry for me, the wanderer. I can picture to myself the countenance of a London landlady if informed thus suddenly of her lodger's departure, and her suppressed mutterings about the ill convenience of such a proceeding. After breakfast I went out to take my own pleasure. I had done my duty in the matter of mouldy churches and mildewed registries, and I considered myself entitled to a holiday during the few hours that must elapse before starting of the hybrid vehicle for Heidling. I sauntered past the little cluster of cottages, admiring their primitive aspect, the stone crop on the red-tiled roofs that had sunk under the weight of years. All was unspeakably fresh and bright. The tiny panes of the casement twinkled in the autumn sunlight. Birds sang, and hardy red geraniums bloomed in the cottage windows. What pleasure or distraction had the good wives of Huxter's Cross to lure them from the domestic delights of scrubbing and polishing? I saw young faces peeping at me from between snow-white muslin curtains, and felt that I was a personage for once in my life and it was pleasant to feel oneself of some importance even in the eyes of Huxter's Cross. Beyond the cottages and the post-office there were three roads, stretching far away over hill and moorland. With two of those roads I had made myself thoroughly familiar, but the third remained unexplored. So now for fresh fields and pastures new, I said to myself as I quickened my pace, and walked briskly along my unknown road. Ah, surely there is some meaning in the fluctuations of the mental barometer. What but an instinctive consciousness of approaching happiness could have made me so light-hearted that morning? I sang as I hastened along that undiscovered road. Fragments of old Italian serenades and baccaroles came back to me as if I had heard them yesterday for the first time. The perfume of the few lingering wildflowers, the odor of burning weeds in the distance, the fresh autumn breeze, the clear cold blue of sky, all were intensely delicious to me, and I felt as if this one lonely walk were a kind of renovating process from which my soul would emerge cleansed of all its stains. I have to thank George Sheldon for a great deal, I said to myself, since through him I have been obliged to educate myself in the school of man's best teacher, Solitude. I do not think I can ever be a thorough bohemian again. These lonely wanderings have led me to discover a vein of seriousness in my nature, which I was ignorant of until now. Now thoroughly some men are the creatures of their surroundings. With Paget, I have been a Paget. But a few hours, tete with nature renders one adverse from the society of Pagets, be they ever so brilliant. From moralizing thus, I fell into a delicious daydream. All of my dreams of late had moved to the same music. How happy I could be if fate gave me Charlotte and three hundred a year! In sober moods I asked for this much of worldly wealth, just to furnish a nest for my bird. In my wilder moments I asked fate for nothing but Charlotte. "'Give me the bird without the nest,' I cried to fortune." and we will take wing to some trackless forest where there are shelter and berries for nestless birds. We will imitate that delightful bride and groom of Parisian Bohemia, who married and settled in an attic. 
and when their stock of fuel was gone fell foul of the staircase that led to their bower and so supplied themselves merrily enough until the staircase was all consumed and the poor little bride peeping out of her door one morning found herself upon the verge of an abyss and then came the furious landlord demanding restitution but close behind the landlord came the good fairy of all love stories with pactolus in her pocket ah yes there is always a providence for true lovers i had passed away by this time from the barren moor to the regions of cultivation the trimly cut hedges on each side of the way showed me that my road now lay between farmlands i was outside the boundary of some upland farm i saw sheep cropping trefoil in a field on the other side of the brown hedgerow and at a distance i saw the red tiled roof of a farmhouse i looked at my watch and found that i still had half an hour to spare so i went onwards to the farmhouse bent upon seeing what sort of habitation it was in a solitary landscape like this every dwelling-place has a kind of attraction for the wayfarer i went on till i came to a white gate against which a girlish figure was leaning it was a graceful figure dressed in that semi-picturesque costume which has been adopted by women of late years the vivid blue of bodice was tempered by the sober gray of a skirt and a light-hued ribbon gleamed among the rich tresses of brown hair the damsel's face was turned away from me but there was something in the carriage of the head something in the modeling of the firm full throat which reminded me of but then when a man is over head and ears in love everything in creation reminds him more or less of his idol your pious catholic gives all his goods for the adornment of a church your true lover devotes his every thought to the dressing up of one dear image the damsel turned as my steps drew near loud on the crisp gravel she turned and showed me the face of charlotte halliday i must entreat posterity to forgive me if i leave a blank at this stage of my story there are chords in the human heart which had better not be vibrated said sim tappertit there are emotions which can only be described by the pen of a poet i am not a poet and if my diary is so happy as to be of some use to posterity as a picture of the manners of a repentant bohemian posterity must not quarrel with my shortcomings in the way of sentimental description chapter four in paradise we stood at the white gate talking to each other my charlotte and i the old red tiled roof which i had seen in the distance sheltered the girl i love the solitary farmhouse which it had been my whim to examine was the house in which my dear love made her home it was here to this untrodden hillside that my darling had come from the prim modern villa at bayswater ah what happiness to find her here far away from all those stockbroking surroundings here where our hearts expanded beneath the divine influence of nature i fear that i was cockcomb enough to fancy myself beloved that day we parted in kensington gardens a look a tone too subtle for definition thrilled me with a sudden hope so bright that i would not trust myself to believe it could be realized she is a coquette i said to myself coquetry is one of the graces which nature bestows upon these bewitching creatures 
that little conscious look which stirred this weak heart so tumultuously is no doubt common to her when she knows herself beloved and admired and has no meaning that can flatter my foolish hopes this is how i had reasoned with myself again and again during the dreary interval in which miss halliday and i had been separated but oh what a hardy perennial blossom hope must be the tender buds were not to be crushed by the pelting hailstones of hard common sense they had survived all my philosophical reflections and burst into a sudden flower to-day at sight of charlotte's face she loved me and was delighted to see me that was what her radiant face told me and could i do less than believe the sweet confession for the first few moments we could scarcely speak to each other and then we began to converse in the usual commonplace strain she told me of her astonishment on seeing me in that remote spot i could hardly confess to having business at huxter's cross so i was fain to tell my dear love a falsehood and declare that i was taking a holiday up at the hills and how do you come to choose huxter's cross for your holiday she asked naively i told her that i had heard the place spoken of by a person in the city a simple-minded sparsfield to wit and you could not have come to a better place she cried though the people do call it the very dullest spot in the world this was my dear aunt mary's house papa's sister you know grandpapa halliday had two farms this was one and highly the other highly was much larger and better than this you know and was left to poor papa who sold it just before he died her face clouded as she spoke of her father's death i can't speak about that without pain even now she said softly though i was only nine years old when it happened but one can suffer a great deal at nine years old and then after a little pause she went on to speak of her yorkshire home my aunt and uncle mercer are so kind to me and yet they are neither of them really related to me my aunt mary died very young when her first baby was born and the poor little baby died too and uncle mercer inherited the property from his wife you see he married again after two years and his second wife is the dearest kindest creature in the world i always call her aunt for i don't remember poor papa's sister at all and no aunt that ever lived could be more kinder to me than aunt dorothy i am always so happy here she said and it seems such a treat to get away from the lawn of course i'm sorry to leave mamma you know she added pathetically and the stiff breakfasts and mr sheldon's newspapers that crackle 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 so shockingly all breakfast time and the stiff dinners with a prim parlour-maid staring at one all the time and one bringing vegetables that one doesn't want if only ventures to breathe a little louder than usual here it is liberty hall uncle joe he is aunt dorothy's husband is the kindest creature in the world just the very reverse of mr sheldon in everything i don't mean that my stepfather is unkind you know oh no he has always been very good to me much kinder than i have deserved that he should be but uncle joe's ways are so different i am sure you will like him and i'm sure he will like you for he likes everybody dear thing and you must come and see us very often please for new hall farm is open house you know and the stranger within the gates is always welcome 
now my duty to my sheldon demanded that i should scamper back to huxter's cross as fast as my legs would carry me in order to be in time for the hybrid vehicle that was to convey me to hydling station and here was this dear girl inviting me to linger and promising me a welcome to the house which was made a paradise by her presence i looked at my watch it would have been impossible for me to reach huxter's cross in time for the vehicle conscience whispered that i should hire my landlord's dog-cart and a boy to drive me to hydling but the whispers of conscience are very faint and love cried aloud stay with charlotte supreme happiness is offered to you for the first time in your life fool that would reject so rare a gift it was to this latter counsel i gave my ear my sheldon's interests went overboard and i stayed by the white gate talking to charlotte till it was quite too late to heed the reproachful grumblings of conscience about the dog-cart my charlotte yes i boldly call her mine now my dear is great in agriculture she enlightened my cockney mind on the subject of upland farms telling me how uncle and aunt mercer's land is poor and sandy requiring very little in the way of draining but producing by no means luxuriant crops it is a very picturesque place and has a certain gentlemanlike air with it pleasing to my snobbish taste the house lies in a tract of open grassland dotted here and there by trees and altogether a park-like appearance true that the mild and useful sheep rather than the stately stag browses on that greensward and few carriages roll along the winding gravel road that leads to the house i felt a rapturous thirst for the agricultural knowledge as i listened to my charlotte was there a vacancy for hind or herdsman on newhall farm i wondered what is the office so humble i would not fill for her dear sake oh how i sighed for the days of jacob that first distinguished user so that i might serve seven years and again seven years for my darling i stayed by the white gate abandoning all thought of my employer's behests unconscious of time unconscious of everything except that i was with charlotte halliday and would not have resigned my position to be made lord chancellor of england anon came uncle joe with a pleasant rubicund visage beaming under a felt hat to tell loda that dinner was ready to him i was immediately presented mr mercer my dear uncle joseph mr hawkehurst a friend of my stepfather's said charlotte two or three minutes afterwards we were all three walking across the park-like sward to the hospitable farmhouse for the idea of my departing before dinner seemed utterly preposterous to this friendly farmer considered apart from the glamour that for my eyes must needs shine over any dwelling inhabited by charlotte halliday i will venture to say that newhall farmhouse is the dearest old place in the world such delightful old rooms with the deepest window-seats the highest mantelpieces the widest fireplaces possible in domestic architecture such mysterious closets and uncanny passages such pitfalls in the way of unexpected flights of stairs such antiquated glazed corner cupboards for the display of old china everything redolent of the past in one corner a spinning wheel so old that its spindle might be the identical weapon that pierced princess sleeping beauty's soft white hand 
in another corner an armchair that must have been old-fashioned in the days of queen anne and oh what ancient flowered chintzes what capacious sofas what darling mahogany secretaries and bureaus with gleamy brazen adornments in the way of handles and about everything the odour of rose-leaves and lavender i have grown familiar with every corner of the dear old place within the last few days but on this first day i had only a general impression of its antiquated aspect and homely comfort i stayed to dine at the same unpretending board at which my charlotte had sat years ago elevated on a high chair and as yet new to the use of knives and forks uncle joe and aunt dorothy told me this in their pleasant friendly way while the young lady sat by blushing and dimpling like a summer sea beneath the rosy flush of sunrise no words can relate how delightful it was to me to hear them talk of my dear love's childhood they dwelt so tenderly upon her sweetness they dilated with such enthusiasm upon her pretty ways her pretty ways ah how fatal a thing it is for mankind when nature endows a woman with those pretty ways from the thrall of grecian noses and castilian eyes there may be hope of deliverance but from the spell of that indescribable witchery there is none i whistled my sheldon down the wind without remorse and allowed myself to be as happy as if i had been the squire of valley and hillside with ten thousand a year to offer my charlotte with the heart that loves her so fondly i have no idea what we had for dinner i only know that the fare was plenteous and that the hospitality of my new friends unabounded we were very much at ease with one another and our laughter rang up to the stalwart beams that sustained the old ceiling if i had possessed the smallest fragment of my heart i should have delivered it over without hesitation to my aunt dorothy pardon my charlotte's aunt dorothy who is the cheeriest brightest kindest matron i ever met with a sweet unworldly spirit that beams out of her candid blue eyes charlotte seems to have been tenderly attached to her father the poor fellow who died in philip sheldon's house uncomfortable for sheldon i should think the mercers talk a good deal of thomas halliday for whom they appear to have entertained a very warm affection they also spoke with considerable kindness of the two sheldons whom they knew as young men in the town of barlingford but i should not imagine either uncle joseph or aunt dorothy very well able to fathom the still waters of the sheldon intellect after dinner uncle joe took us around the farm the last stack of corn had been thatched and there was a peaceful lull in the agricultural world we went into a quadrangle lined with poultry sheds where i saw more of the feathered race than i had ever in my life beheld congregated together thence to the inspection of pigs and it was agreeable to inspect even those vulgar querulous grunters with charlotte by my side her brightness shed a light on all those common objects and oh how i longed to be a farmer like uncle mercer and devote my life to charlotte and agriculture when uncle joe had done the honors of his farmyards and threshing machinery he left us to attend to his afternoon duties we wandered together over the breezy upland at our own sweet wills or at her sweet will rather since what could i do but follow where she pleased to lead we talked of many things of the father whom she had loved so dearly 
whose memory was still so mournfully dear to her of her old home at highly of her visits to these dear mercers of her school days and her new unloved home in the smart bayswater villa she confided in me as she had never done before and when we turned in the chill autumn gloaming i had told her of my love and had won from her the sweet confession of its return i have never known happiness so perfect as that which i felt as we walked home together home yes that old farmhouse must be my home as well as hers henceforward for any habitation which she loved must be a kind of home for me sober reflection tells me how reckless and imprudent my whole conduct has been in this business but when did ever love and prudence go hand in hand we were children charlotte and i on that blessed afternoon and we told each other our love as children might have told it without thought of the future we have both grown wiser since that time and are quite agreed as to our imprudence and foolishness but though we endeavour to contemplate the future in the utmost serious manner we are too happy in the present to be able to analyse the difficulties and dangers that lie in our pathway surely there must be a providence for imprudent lovers the november dews fell thick and the november air was chill as we walked back to the homestead i was sorry that there should be that creeping dampness in the atmosphere that night it seemed out of harmony with the new warmth in my heart i pressed my darling's little hand closer to my breast and had no more consciousness of any impediments to my future bliss than of the ground on which i walked and that seemed air we found our chairs waiting for us at aunt dorothy's tea-table and i enjoyed that aldermanic banquet a yorkshire tea under circumstances that elevate it to an olympian repast i thought of the comic latin grammar musa masai the gods were at tea musai musam eating raspberry jam i was jove and my love was juno i looked at her athwart the misty clouds that issued from the hissing urn and saw her beautified by a heightened bloom and with a sweet shy conscious look in her eyes which made her indeed divine after tea we played whist and i am bound to confess that my divinity played execrably persistently disdaining to return her partner's lead and putting mean little trumps upon her adversary's tricks with a fascist economy of resources which is always ruin i stayed till ten o'clock reckless of the unknown country which separated me from the magpie and then walked home alone under the faint starlight though my friendly host would have fain lent me a dog-cart the good people here lend one another dog-carts as freely as a cockney offers his umbrella i went back to huxter's cross alone and the long solitary walk was very pleasant to me looking up at the stars as i tramped homeward i could but remember an old epigram were you the earth dear love and i the skies my love should shine on you like to the sun and look upon you with ten thousand eyes till heaven waxed blind and till the world were done i had ample leisure for reflection during that long night walk and found myself becoming a perfect young hervey sturm what you will in the way of meditation i could not choose but wonder at myself when i looked back to this time last year and remembered my idle evenings in the third-rate cafes 
on the rive gauche plain dominoes talking the foul language of parisian bohemia and poisoning my system with adulterated absinthe and now i feast upon sweet cakes and honey and i think it paradisiac enjoyment to play whist for love in a farmhouse parlor i am younger by ten years than i was twelve months ago ah let me thank god who has sent me my redemption i lifted my hat and pronounced the thanksgiving softly under that tranquil sky i was almost ashamed to hear the sound of my own voice i was like some shy child who for the first time speaks his father's name End of Book the Sixth, Part Three. Chapter Five, Too Fair to Last. In my confidence with my girl, I had told her neither the nature of my mission in Yorkshire nor the fact that I was bound to leave Huxter's Cross immediately upon exploring expedition to nowhere in particular, in search of the archives of the Manells. How could I bring myself to tell her that I must leave her? How much less could I bring myself to do it? rendered desperately unmindful of the universe by reason of all my absorbing happiness i determined on giving myself a holiday boldly in defiance of sheldon and the sheldonian interests am i a bounden slave i ask myself that i should go here or there at any man's bidding for the pitiful stipend of twenty shillings a week it is to be observed that the rate of hire makes all the difference in these cases and while it is ignominious for a lawyer's clerk to hasten to and fro in the earning of his weekly wage it is in no way dishonourable for the minister of state to obey the call of his chief and hurry hither and thither in abnegation of all his own predilections and to the aggravation of his chronic gout i wrote to my sheldon and told him that i had met with friends in the neighbourhood of huxter's cross and that i intended to give myself a brief holiday after which i would resume my labors and do my uttermost to make up for wasted time i had still the remnant of my borrowed thirty pounds and amongst these northern hills i felt myself a millionaire three thousand pounds at five per cent one hundred and fifty pounds a year i felt that with such an income assured to us and the fruits of my industry charlotte and i might be secure from all the storms of life ah what happiness it would be to work for her and i am not too old to begin life afresh not too old for the bar not too old to make some mark as a writer on the press not too old to become a respectable member of society after having dispatched my letter to sheldon i made off for newhall farm with all speed i had received a sort of general invitation from the kindest of uncles and aunts but i contrived with becoming modesty to arrive after mr mercer's dinner hour i found charlotte alone in the dear old-fashioned parlour aunt dorothy being engaged in some domestic operations in the kitchen and uncle joseph making his usual after-dinner rounds amongst the pigsties and the threshing machines i discovered afterwards that it was miss halliday's wont to accompany her kind kinsman in this afternoon investigation but to-day she had complained of a headache and preferred to stay at home yet there were a few symptoms of the headache when i found her standing in the bow window watching the path by which i came and the face of aurora herself could scarcely be brighter or fresher than my darling's innocent blushes 
when I greeted her with the privileged kiss of betrothal. We sat in the bow window, talking till the twilight shadows crept over the greensward, and the sheep were led away to their fold, with cheerful jingling bells and barking of watchful dog. My dearest girl told me that our secret had already been discovered by the penetrating eyes of Aunt Dorothy and Uncle Joseph. They had teased her unmercifully, it seemed, all that day, but were graciously pleased to smile upon my suit, like a pair of imprudent Arcadians as they are. "'They like you very much indeed,' my Lota said joyously. "'But I believe they think I have known you much longer than I really have, and that you are very intimate with my stepfather.' It seems almost like deceiving them to allow them to think so. But I really haven't the courage to tell the truth. How foolish and bold they would think me if they knew how very short a time I have known you. Twenty times longer than Juliet had known Romeo when they met in the friar's cell to be married, I urged. Yes, but that was in a play, replied Charlotte, where everything is obliged to be hurried. And at Hyde Lodge we all of us thought that Juliet was a very forward young person. The poets all believe in love at first sight, and I'll wager our Uncle Joe fell head over and ears in love with Aunt Dorothy after having danced with her two or three times at an assize ball, said I. After this we became intensely serious, and I told my darling girl that I hoped very soon to be in possession of a small fixed income and to have begun a professional career. I told her how dear an incentive to work she had given me, and how little fear I had for the future. I reminded her that Mr. Sheldon had no legal power to control her actions, and that, as her father's will had left her entirely to her mother's guardianship, she had only her mother's pleasure to consult. I believe poor Mama would let me marry a crossing-sweeper, if I cried and declared it would make me miserable not to marry him, said Charlotte. But then, you see, Mamma's wishes mean Mr. Sheldon's wishes. She is sure to think whatever he tells her to think. And if he is strongly against our marriage, as I am sure he will be, I interjected, he will work upon poor Mamma in that calm, persistent, logical way of his until he makes her as much against it as himself. "'But even your mamma has no legal power to control your actions, my love. "'Were you not of age on your last birthday?' "'My darling replied in the affirmative. "'Then, of course, you are free to marry whom you please. "'And as I am thankful to say you don't possess a single sixpence in your own right, "'there need be no fuss about settlements or pin-money. "'We can marry any fine morning that my girl pleases to name, "'and defy all the stern stepfathers in creation.' "'How I wish I had a fortune for your sake,' she said with a sigh. "'Be glad for my sake that you have none,' I answered. "'You cannot imagine the miserable complications and perplexities which arise in this world from the possession of money. No slave so tightly bound as the man who has what people call a stake in the country, and a balance at his banker's. The true monarch of all he surveys is the penniless reprobate who walks down Fleet Street, with his whole estate covered by the seedy hat upon his head. Having thus moralized, I proceeded to ask Miss Halliday if she was prepared to accept a humbler station than that enjoyed by her at the lawn. No useful landau to be an open carriage at noon and a family coach at night, I said. No nimble page to skip hither and thither at his fair lady's commands 
if not belated on the way by the excitement of tossing halfpence with youthful adventures of the byways and alleys. No trim parlour maids with irreproachable caps, dressed for the day at eleven o'clock a.m. But instead of these, a humble six-roomed bandbox of a house, and one poor hard-working slavey, with perennial smudges from saucepan lids upon her honest pug nose. Consider the prospect seriously, Charlotte, and ask yourself whether you can endure such a descent in the social scale. My Charlotte laughed, as if the prospect had been the most delightful picture ever presented to mortal vision. "'Do you think I care for the Landau or the Page?' she cried. "'If it were not for Mamma's sake, I should detest that prim villa and all its arrangements. "'You see me so happy here. There is no pretense of grandeur.' but I am bound to warn you that I shall not be able to provide Yorkshire teas at the commencements of our domestic career, I remarked by way of parentheses. Aunt Dorothy will send us hampers of poultry and cakes, sir, and for the rest of our time we can live upon bread and water. On this I promised my betrothed the house in Cavendish or Portman Square, and a better-built Landau than Mr. Sheldon's in the remote future." With those dear eyes for my pole-stars, I felt myself strong enough to clamber up the slippery ascent to the bull-sack. The best and purest ambition must surely be that which is only a synonym for love. After we had sat talking in the gloaming to our heart's content, Aunt Dorothy appeared, followed by a sturdy handmaid with lighted candles, and a still sturdier handmaid with a ponderous tea-tray. The two made haste to spread a snow-white cloth, and to set forth the species of banquet which it is the fashion nowadays to call high tea. Anon came Uncle Joseph, bringing with him some slight perfume from the piggeries, and he and Aunt Dorothy were pleased to be pleasantly facetious and congratulatory in their conversation during the social meal which followed their advent. After tea we played wits again. Aunt Dorothy and I obtaining a succession of easy victories over Charlotte and Uncle Joe. I felt myself hourly more and more completely at home in that simple domestic circle, and enjoyed the proud position of an accepted lover. My Arcadian friends troubled themselves in no wise as to the approval or disapproval of Mr. and Mrs. Sheldon, or with regard either to my prospects or my antecedents. They saw me devoted to my dear girl. They saw my dearest pleased by my devotion. And they loved her so well that they were ready to open their hearts without reserve to the man who adored her and was loved by her, let him be rich or poor, noble or base-born. As they would have given her the wax doll of her desire ten or twelve years ago without question as to price or fitness of things, so they now gave her kindly smiles and approval for the lover of her choice. "'I know Philip Sheldon is a man who looks to the main chance,' said Uncle Joe, in the course of a discussion about his niece's future, which dyed her cheeks with blushes in the present. "'And I shall lay you find him rather a difficult customer to deal with, especially as poor Tom's will be left all the money in George's hands, which of course is tantamount to saying that Sheldon has got the disposal of it.' I assured Uncle Joe that the money was the very last thing I desired. "'Then, in that case, I don't see why he shouldn't let you have Charlotte,' replied Mr. Mercer. "'And if she's cheated out of her poor dad's money, 
she shan't be cheated out of what her old aunt and uncle may have to leave her by and by here were these worthy people promising me an heiress with no more compunction than if they had been offering me a cup of tea i walked homeward once more beneath the quiet stars oh how happy i was can happiness so perfect joy so sinless endure i the friendless wanderer and penniless bohemian asked myself this question and again i paused upon the lonely moorland road to lift my hat as i thanked god for having given me such bright hopes but george sheldon's three thousand pounds must be mine before i can secure the humblest shelter for my sweet one and although it would be bliss to me to tramp through the world barefoot with charlotte by my side the barefooted state of things is scarcely the sort of prospect a man would care to offer to the woman he loves so once more to the chase one more day in this delicious land of the lotus-eaters newhall farm and then away hark forward tantivy and hey for the marriage lines of charlotte Manel, great-granddaughter of matthew haygarth and if still in the fresh rightful heiress to the one hundred thousand pounds at present likely to be absorbed by the ravening jaws of the crown one more day one more delightful idle day in the land where it is always afternoon and then away to hydling in the hybrid vehicle and thence to hull from hull to york from york to leeds then bradford to huddersfield the rain beats against the diamond panes of my casement as i write the day has been hopelessly wet so i have stayed in my snug little chamber and occupied myself in writing this record foul wind or weather would have little power to keep me from my darling but even if it had been a fine day i could not with any grace have presented myself at newhall farm for a third afternoon to-morrow my immediate departure will afford me an excuse for presenting myself once more before my kind uncle and aunt it will be my farewell visit i wonder whether charlotte will miss me this afternoon i wonder whether she will be sorry when i tell her that i am going to leave this part of the country ah shall we ever meet again under such happy auspices shall i ever again find such friends or such a hospitable dwelling as those i leave amidst these northern hills end of book the sixth part three